Attention ASRM Today listeners, are you ready for the event of the year? Register now for the ASRM 2023 Scientific Congress and Expo, the premier conference for reproductive medicine happening in New Orleans, Louisiana, October the 14th through the 18th. Get ready to immerse yourself in cutting-edge scientific sessions, engaging workshops, and once-a-year networking opportunities. Discover the latest breakthrough in reproductive science, exchange ideas with industry leaders, and expand your clinical knowledge. With over 200 expert speakers and hundreds of exhibitors showcasing the latest advancements in reproductive technology, this is the event you cannot afford to miss. Mark your calendar and register now for ASRM 2023 New Orleans by visiting www.asrmcongress.org. On with the show. Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and today on the show, we're having a conversation about artificial intelligence and reproductive medicine. Joining us is Dr. Carol Kirchow, CEO and founder, ART Compass, in AIVF Technology, and is author of the paper, Unlock the Algorithms, Regulation of Adaptive Algorithms in Reproduction, which is currently available online through Fertility and Sterility. Dr. Kirchow, welcome to ASRM Today. Thank you so much for having me. So I'll, I'll start off with a with sort of a, a softball broad question for our audience, who, who I'm sure are very curious. What does artificial intelligence have to do with reproductive medicine? That is such a good question. So we interact with artificial intelligence actually every day in our normal everyday lives. Siri, Alexa, um, any voice activated assistants like that are all based on artificial intelligence technology. We also interact with it when we get recommendations from Amazon about what we might like to buy or a recommendation from Netflix about what movies we might like to watch, depending on our genre and our previous purchases. So there are other more very subtle ways that we interact with artificial intelligence in our everyday life. For example, when you make a application to get a bank loan, a software program might analyze your data and tell the bank whether you're a good fit or not based on hundreds of applications that they've seen in the past and whether those have been defaulted on or not. So artificial intelligence is kind of a broad catch-all term, and it really applies to algorithms that computers run that can think, act, and make decisions and make a recommendation or a prognosis. They can predict the outcome of something in general. So artificial intelligence interacts with the world of medicine in many different subspecialties already. Cardiac, cancer, so radiography, you know, pictures of the lungs and for tumors and for all of those kinds of things. So within reproductive medicine, we are also seeing applications of artificial intelligence. Basically, for embryo selection, anything that has an image or a video, sperm selection, oocyte quality, embryo quality, even embryo ploidy or normalcy nowadays. And then we're also starting to see some AI models that can predict dosing and timing of medications and those kinds of things. 
with respect then to the FDA and FDA regulation, you know, why does the FDA want to get involved <laughs> with all this, yeah. with all this regulation then? Yeah. So the FDA in the U.S., it, it, it has a couple different functions, but one of them is to keep us safe from medical devices that can be manufactured by, you know, anybody from a small manufacturer to a very large manufacturer. So a medical device is a test or a device that has, it, it touches human clinical medicine and basically anything that intervenes, diagnoses, cures, treats, any sort of, of disease, the FDA wants to regulate. So they have looked at artificial intelligence and its ability to predict, to diagnose, and to make decisions for people and how that applies to medical devices. And they have said that basically it is risky enough that they want to regulate it. Can you briefly talk about then the difference between procedures, tests, and interventions? Yeah. So within IVF, it's interesting because the field of IVF covers a broad range of, of things that touch patients' lives. So we have cell-based procedures, which are those that we do in the lab with embryos, with sperm, um, with eggs, you know, oocytes. So that's your oocyte freezing, your culturing and growing of embryos, your freezing of sperm and your use of sperm. So those are all cell-based procedures. Those are not tests per se. They don't generate a diagnostic result that ends up in the patient's chart to, um, to, to diagnose the infertility. So we can get a lot of information from those procedures that help to guide our thinking, but they in and of themselves are not tests. Then there's this other category, which is the actual lab-developed test. So infertility patients or IVF patients will be familiar with lab-developed tests because PGTA is considered to be a lab-developed test. Now, lab-developed tests are tests that the FDA says are medical devices, but that they are so niche and the risk is so low that they're not going to regulate them in the same way that they are going to regulate something that is directly interventional. So for an example of that would be like an insulin pump that's implanted in your body and is responding to your glucose levels and then pumping out insulin in response to that. And then within reproductive medicine, we're, we're thinking of all the, all the medical devices that are like, you know, syringes that automatically administer a volume of drug or other types of really interventional um, medical devices that directly impact a patient's cycle and their usage of the device. Is that why then it, it's, it will or will not fall under clinical laboratory improvement uh, or clinical laboratory improvement amendment? Yeah. So the for, for listeners who don't know, clinical labs are governed by a set of federal regulations, which was developed in 1988. All physicians rely on clinical labs to run the tests and then give the results for those tests to the physicians for, for diagnostics. And so that's exactly why embryology procedures don't fall under the, the CLIA 88 regulations. So most embryology labs have three components, actually. They have an endocrinology lab that runs blood work. That does fall under CLIA 88. There is an andrology lab where we do semen analysis. That is also a high-complexity test that falls under CLIA 88. 
And then there's the embryology lab, which performs cell-based procedures with the products and the information of those other laboratories. So it's, it's definitely an interesting area of medicine where the lab directly translates to the patient and to the person and touches them in a very direct way. I mean, a lot of times you even have embryologists right there in the room while the transfer is happening, um, uh, certainly during the transfer and, and probably also during the ovum pickup. But yet the procedures that we do are mostly governed under a different accrediting body, usually the College of American Pathologists or the CAP. And the CAP actually provides guidance based on CLIA. So even though the embryology lab itself falls outside of CLIA, we pretty much still follow those CLIA guidelines. My guest today is Dr. Carol Kirchhoff. We are talking about artificial intelligence in reproductive medicine, specifically a paper that Dr. Kirchhoff wrote called Unlock the Algorithms, Regulation of Adaptive Algorithms in Reproduction, which is currently available through fertility and sterility. I have to ask, how did you get interested in this? What, what led you down this, down this path? Okay, so this is, I mean, this another really good question. So my, as a Part of my background, I'm a reproductive physiologist, so I have a PhD in the physiology of reproduction, and eventually infertility actually touched me in my own life. And that's a very common story among people who work in infertility medicine, that somehow they interacted with the industry, and then they decided to actually become clinicians of some sort themselves, or technologists or clinicians. So I, you know, infertility touched me personally. And when I became pregnant with my own miracle baby, I decided that I really wanted to use my scientific background and knowledge to help other people struggling with infertility. So I became a clinical embryologist. And as I got into the field of embryology, I did what's what's known in academia as a sabbatical. I took a sabbatical to change my career from being one that was research-based entirely to one that was in clinical medicine. So when I did my sabbatical, not only did I learn the mechanics of human clinical embryology, but I also did some research. And my 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 research niche was in artificial intelligence. Um, so that was done with Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard. And then it kind of solidified my interest in using computers to help make our lives easier to democratize access to IVF by bringing costs down for everybody. It's going to make IVF cycles more effective, more efficient, and it's also going to help infertility patients, frankly, get pregnant faster, which is what we all want to do. You know, this is all in the best interest of the patients who need this technology. Well, those are definitely some pros to algorithm use and very important ones. Are, are, are there any cons that we should be aware of that, that at least at this time uh, that we should oh, yes. you know, be very cautious about? Oh, yes, absolutely. So like with all of, of everything in reproductive medicine, you know, we want our technologies to be validated. Um, so we want them to be proven to be effective. We don't just want to say these are effective, use them. We want them to be very well proven. Artificial intelligence in general has a a problem with data collection and storage and annotation. So when we're dealing with what's called big data, these humongous data sets, they should contain millions and millions of points. So you can imagine if there is a flaw somewhere in the system, it's going to affect all of the data within that structure. So having really clean data in, we, we say, you know, 
bad data in, bad data out, basically. So we have to have really good, clean data going in. It needs to be broad. It needs to be general. It needs to hit a lot of different patient populations all across the world and all across our country and be effective for everybody. So there, there is a topic of bias in algorithms. And bias comes from humans. It comes from our systems. It comes from what we do. So a good example of that would be there was recently a technology. It was a pulse oximeter that goes on your finger and measures your oxygen content in your blood. And it didn't work as well on people with darker skin. So the the light technology that they were using to penetrate the, the skin was trained mostly on light-colored skin. So it can be a problem when we inject our own human bias and fallibility into these uh, medical devices. And, you know, when, when we're talking about artificial intelligence within reproductive medicine, I start to think of the different things that can happen. Like one of the things I was thinking about recently is, so artificial intelligence, um, systems typically grade the embryos and they rank them for transfer. So they give a grade and a rank to tell us which is the best embryo for transfer. And a lot of times we don't know how the artificial intelligence systems are making those decisions. And one of the things that they could be making it on is the embryo that grows the biggest, the fastest. And Ultimately, we don't know whether if if we choose all of those embryos, if later on when all of those IVF babies become adults, what if there was some gene variant that was related to cancer or cardiovascular disease that was prevalent in driving the growth of those embryos and made them grow larger, faster? And it doesn't, the effects of that don't manifest until 20, 30, or 40 years down the road. So IVF itself, as as most people know, the specialty, the whole specialty is only about 40 years old. So just today, the the first IVF babies are about my age. So you've written this wonderful paper that everyone can read, and we'll throw the link up in our show notes so people can just click on it and, and head on over to fertility and sterility. You know, what's next for you? Uh, or Or are there resources that you would like to recommend to the audience who would like to maybe take the same kind of deep dives that you're taking right now in your research and in your writing. Yeah, absolutely. So the um so one of the topics that I do bring up in the paper is you know, IVF has it does have a tendency to be available to people who are of a certain background. And so our data is not as diverse as it could be in terms of the genetic background of various people and where their families or their their ancestors originated in the world. So one of the things that we really want to take a look at, and I talk about in this paper, is what does it mean to have sufficient diversity of medical data to train these AI algorithms with? And so because the AI algorithms touch such a wide spectrum of applications, all the way from embryo selection and grading to adjusting the dosage of a stimulation cycle or the day of trigger. So it goes all the way from those cell-based procedures that, that we would like to have augmented with AI, the choice and the decision through the lab developed tests and then through these directly interventional medical devices. So one of the the directions that we're looking at in the future is how do we advise FDA and how do we work together with FDA as an industry to bring nuance and 
real good scientific thoughtfulness to the way that they regulate AI technologies. So when you're talking about an AI that is for embryo selection, for example, the cell-based procedure that is not even regulated by CLIA 88, when we want it to augment our decision-making, we're not making a difference in the patient's cycle in that we, we're not deciding, for example, not to transfer an embryo based on the results of the AI. We are deciding among the patient's own embryos which embryo to transfer. So that, you know, it's, it's very non-interventional. It is simply hoping to make a better choice for the patient that gets them pregnant faster with a healthier embryo. So the second class of AI devices that are um, aimed at embryo selection technologies fall into the category of almost diagnosing an embryo. So they're, they're going along the lines of deciding the embryo's chromosomal normality. And that is starting to touch on an area that the FDA does say is a regulated medical device, but doesn't in itself regulate. So those are those lab-developed PGT type of tests. And so we do need to be careful of the way we apply this technology in the IVF lab, what we're using it for, and hopefully to work with FDA to create a really good nuanced um, understanding and future regulation that doesn't stifle technology and the growth of the industry and allows us to quickly implement these technologies in the lab and you know, iterate on them and keep improving them. That's the whole point of an adaptive algorithm is that it's going to take in all of this data and all of these results and start to make better and better decisions and better clinical outcomes for the, the patient. So they, they do very rapidly change themselves and their programming. And so we want to just make sure that the regulation and the, the thought about the regulation keeps pace with what we know scientifically to be accurate. My guest today has been Dr. Carol Kircher. We have been talking about artificial intelligence and reproductive medicine specifically. Also, she is the author of the paper, Unlock the Algorithms, Regulation of Adaptive Algorithms in Reproduction, which is currently available online through fertility and sterility. Dr. Kircher, thank you so much for being able to take time out to talk about this with us today. Thank you so much for having me. If you have questions about this show, uh, about this episode, you can uh, uh, email me, asrm at asrm.org. As always, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple, Google, Podbean, wherever you get your podcast and needs taken care of. And until next time, I am Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.